0: Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, The Imprecatory Psalms. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton.
1: From this Sunday and leading up to Easter, I'm going to be preaching from the imprecatory psalms. And it's not a word that you probably use on a daily basis, but it's fun to say. Imprecatory. Imprec- you know, say it five times and you've got it, right? What are those? The imprecatory psalms are those psalms in which the psalmist invokes God's judgment upon God's and the psalmist's enemies by pouring out His wrath upon them. They're those psalms that sometimes when you're reading and you go, that's in God's Word? Yes, that's in God's Word. And we are to be people of the whole council of God's Word. And so we're not going to shy away from the imprecatory psalms. Still fun to say, but we are going to dive in and we're going to look at them in the coming weeks, as I said, leading up to Easter, and we're just going to start at the beginning of the Psalms and work our way through. I will not get through all the imprecatory Psalms in this season, uh, but perhaps we'll return to them next year. Let's look together at Psalm 7. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. O Lord my God. In you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who fills indignation every day. If a man does not repent... God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, you know what distracted hearts we have. Oh, give us self-recollection. You know what hard, dead hearts we have. Oh, touch and awaken us. You know how we yet resist your word, and our lower nature is reluctant to bow to your scepter. Therefore, O oh Lord, show forth your power. Send your Spirit on high to work among us, to make our hearts submissive and ourselves capable of living in true union with you, our salvation, and of yielding totally to your grace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I said, the seventh psalm is one of the imprecatory psalms, psalms that invoke God's judgment upon His and our enemies. But the seventh psalm is also a personal lament of David, who is being persecuted because of the words, according to the introduction, according to the words of a Benjamite, an unknown man named Cush. It is a psalm that resonates with anyone, any of us who have ever been wrongly accused, wrongly attacked, even persecuted unjustly, and we long for justice. Of course, there is injustice all around us. I don't have to remind you that we live in a fallen world. But when it affects me personally, when it affects you personally, Especially if I have been misjudged, if you have been misjudged, if we have been mistreated, we long for justice, for wrong to be righted. It is also in moments like this that we are susceptible to the temptation to pursue justice by our own means, to be the avenger. How easy it is to justify retaliation when our sinful flesh fosters a sense of self-righteous indignation. How easy it is to justify this, to feel vindicated when responding in kind, we being the ones that make it right. That's not God's way. He says, vengeance is mine. You see, repaying evil for evil is evil. (laughs) If possible. So far as it depends upon you, the Apostle Paul says to the church, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That was appropriate in the first century. It is appropriate this morning, isn't it? And though our our flesh would vindicate itself in sin, the Spirit points us to Christ. Scripture says, Though He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And it is to him who judges justly that we make our appeal. We make our appeal even amidst persecution, diligently praying for deliverance, honestly examining ourselves, humbly asking for justice, and gratefully praising the Lord In all things. And these are the themes that I want us to look at today from this psalm. And I want us to begin with this theme of prayer. Diligently pray for deliverance. Diligently pray for deliverance. Prayer is not a Christian's last resort. But our first response. And we don't often behave that way, do we? We often don't think that way. But prayer is not waiting until, well, you know, and, until I can, can't carry these, these burdens anymore. And, and now, well, I guess I better, I better resort to prayer. No, Scripture says that we are to cast every care upon Him who cares. Casting our cares, however, does not mean sharpening our tongues. Casting our cares does not mean wetting the sword of our vengeance. Rather, it means falling to our knees and praying, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. That's the prayer of a covenant child to his or her Heavenly Father, for salvation. And in this case, we don't know if David is writing metaphorically or literally, but if he is writing literally, then he is praying that he will not be torn apart, not be torn to pieces. Though we do not know the specific situation, David is fearing for his life. Perhaps the words of Cush, mobilized a mob... Because we know that violence begins from the word of the mouth. Whatever the case, David, and remember we're talking a man who was, according to Scripture, skilled in warfare and his enemies feared him. That's the guy we're talking about here. But according to this psalm, he is confessing that there is no one to defend him. There is no one to fight for him. There is no one to deliver him but one. And he is enough. David's cry, if you listen to the psalm honestly, it is a cry of utter desperation, dependence upon the Lord, which can be frightening to our flesh. But it is also a beautiful thing in the spirit. David's desperate cry is not a hopeless one. Because the way of God is perfect. The Word of God proves true. Psalm 18 says, He is a shield to all those who take refuge in Him. And so, first, let us pray diligently for deliverance. The second theme that I want us to look at is examination. Honestly examine. Yourself. Lest his prayers sound presumptive, David in this psalm admits he could be wrong. He is merely mortal, right? He's a sinner saved by grace like you and like me. And so, honestly, he's asking what what if he's blinded by his own self righteousness? What if the words of Cush were God's vicarious discipline for unrepentant sin? What if David's circumstances are his own fault? Since all these are possible, David honestly examines himself before the Lord. But the essence of his prayer is very similar to what he prays in Psalm 139, where we read this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see... If there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In fact, if you walk with me through verse 3, and through verse 4, and through verse 5, what we see here is David says, if I have done this, sinning with my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, then then my enemy's pursuit of me is just. Let him overtake me. Let him trample me. Ashes to ashes. Rest my glory in the dust. It's a bold prayer. I think it's a prayer that many of us may be fearful to pray ourselves. But David is courageous in praying in this. And we must be too. Courageous in honestly examining ourselves. Submitting to Him who tests our hearts and minds. Because here's what we know according to Scripture. He knows your mind better than you do yourself. He knows your heart better than you do yourself. So there is no reason to run but to submit ourselves to Him who is omniscient, but this is also a prayer of not only one who is honest before God, but one who does not fear that God is a righteous judge. In fact, he states that God is a righteous judge. It's not a fearful statement. You see, false humility fill fools only the gullible. And our Lord is not. He will not be manipulated by our spin in justifying our sin, nor influenced by a heart that harbors iniquity. Who do you think you're hiding it from? Maybe me. Maybe your neighbor. But not God. Not He who sees it all. And so, Scripture is quite clear. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must check our motives on our knees that we are not motivated by our own self-righteousness, but by God's righteousness. This is all the more motivation for us to live righteously before God. To be wrongly criticized, to be unjustly harassed, To be persecuted by our enemy. Look, to be clear, that's misery. And David is not denying it, and I'm not preaching a sermon contrary to that. That is a miserable life to be unjustly accused. But here's what the Apostle Peter says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. You know this, and I know this. But Scripture reminds us, we cannot control what other people say about us. We cannot control what other people do to us. But what can we control? We can control how we respond. We can control what we think, what we say, what we do. Contrary to the message of the world, you are not an animal. And you are not a victim of your circumstances. If you are in Christ, you're a child of God. If you are in Christ, you're redeemed victoriously in Christ. Don't wallow in your self-pity, Peter says. You're blessed. And so we are. When we are falsely accused by men, Matthew Henry says, it is a great comfort if our own consciences acquit us. <laughs> that, that's a good testimony. Because you know what I know? I know that when we are faithful to live in obedience... Well, I appreciate that prayer this morning that Steve prayed. When we are faithful to live in obedience... To live righteously before the Lord, doors open for us to tell others the reason for the hope that is in you. And I'm just going to tell you right here, don't hurl hymnals at me. We're moving into a political year, and there will be politics out in the world, and elections so I'm told, coming up this year. And let me be clear. You can ruin your Christian witness in 1.7 seconds. Obedience. Humility. Submit yourself before Christ. Because there is nothing greater, not a presidential election or anything else, that there is nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater than your life shining out saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The third thing I want us to look at in this passage is asking for justice. This is the part of the psalm that's difficult for some, but we are to humbly ask God for justice you see humbly having examined himself before God and trusting in God's purpose David pleads and wait for it he pleads for God's righteous anger and swift justice don't miss it in verse 6 arise o lord in your anger lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies awake for me you have appointed a judgment he who has been unjustly persecuted and fears for his life, now he prays that God would direct his wrath upon his enemies. That's exactly what he's praying. David's invocation invocation is not a manipulation petition to an emotionally charged deity as if he could somehow stir up God and just get God angry enough to where he might do something. And <laughs> hey, look... He is praying to the Lord God Almighty. Verse 11, this is key. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Think about that. Not one day passes when His wrath is not revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not one day passes when God is not incensed by the disobedience of His, or of His righteous decree. He is a God who, as David says clearly, has appointed a judgment. A day that every sin of every day is headed toward. A day to judge the peoples. Intentionally plural. And David prays, let that be today. Let that judgment day be today. And if it is today, interestingly enough, David is ready as only one who stands justified as righteous before God can be. There is nothing to add to what God has done for us in Christ. All who, like David, look by faith to the Lord's righteousness, you are as righteous today as you will be on judgment day. But we don't think that way. I've got a few things I need to do. I've got got to live just a little bit better. I've got to do a little better, try a little harder. I've, I've got to bring what I can to get ready for judgment day. Hey, if you are in Christ, you are as righteous in this nanosecond as you will be on judgment day. Because you will stand before Christ not in your own merits, not in your own works, but in the merit and work of Christ. And Christ alone. We petition our Heavenly Father, you see, with privilege. The writer of Hebrews says that we confidently draw near to the Lord with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In contrast, David says the wicked, they rebel against God, their lives are characterized by a pursuit of what God hates. In fact, in verses four, starting in verse 14, David paints the picture, fascinatingly enough, of a pregnancy. But it's not the pregnancy of a beautiful child, it's a pregnancy of evil. Look at it with me. He says that a woman conceives, carries a child, and gives birth. And so it is with the wicked, who conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. There's no consideration of consequences The wicked do not realize that sin has always ended the same way. But think about that. Sin from the fall has always ended in the same way. So everything that has happened in the world up until this point and will happen after, it always ends the same way. That's why it's so brilliant when James, in his very first chapter of his epistle, says this. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or Paul says in Romans chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death. It's earned. But the wicked don't care at all about their account balance. The wicked is blinded by the abundance of his iniquity, and so... In the end, let me play this out for you. This is what Scripture says, though you may not see it today, may you not see it tomorrow, but this is the way it's going to end. In the end, David says, in the end, the wicked is blinded by the abundance of his iniquity. And so, he's going to eventually ensnare himself. The trouble he causes recoils, the Hebrews translated there, on himself. His violence comes down on his own skull, on his own head. Perhaps not today, but for certain at the last day. Therefore, we should not lose heart. Because so often it is easy to look around and see what's happening in the world and get discouraged and lose heart and think, where is God in this God is exactly where he has always been, reigning on his throne from heaven. And so, what will we see on that last day? We'll see judgment. And so, you ask, well, then, how do we pray? How how do we pray for the wicked? If final justness, justice will not come for the wicked until the day of judgment, how do we pray? Well, in humility, first, we pray for the repentance. If a man does not repent, David says, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. But I ask you, how do we know if someone who is ensnared in wickedness today is not one of God's elect to be revealed tomorrow? Do you know that? I don't know that. Only God knows His elect. As the Apostle Peter explains, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, that judgment day is not at this very moment, is telling of God's patience and mercy that all of his elect may be gathered in. In other words, who knows if your enemy today may end up being your brother tomorrow. But the second thing that we can pray for in humility is to pray that the evil, the evil that they are doing, will come to an end, that it will cease. And that is a great prayer to pray when we look around and feel as if we are losing heart, as we feel like the, the bad guys are winning. That's a good prayer to pray. Lord, bring wickedness, bring evil to an end. And evil may come, may be ceased in a variety of ways. In fact, Scripture says a number of times that it ceases with the evil being put to death or dying of natural death. But what we pray for, to be clear, is not merely cultural transformation. I know that's really popular in the evangelical Christianity right now. Let me, let me just be as blunt as I can be here. And if you've fallen asleep, wake, them, wake up you got to hear this. I want to be clear on this and not misunderstood. Transformed culture apart from concert, converted souls is another name for hell. Transformed culture. So we can, we can get rid of abortion. We can get everybody following the Ten Commandments. We can look at a culture and go, my gosh... Has Jesus come? Look at this. Look what's happening. But if the soul is not converted, then that person who is following the Ten Commandments will burn in the lake of fire for eternity. So don't let the devil fool you. We're not here to transform culture. We're here to take the gospel unto the nations. We are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is not going to happen by your vote. And that is not going to happen by you trying to get out and manipulate culture so you can get different things to happen. It's going to happen through the preaching of the gospel. It's going to happen through the administration of his sacraments. It's going to happen through you and me on our knees, praying for our enemies. Was I clear? Okay. You see, the judgment day... Is coming. And we do pray. That evil ceases. Through the conversion of hearts. To the gospel. We pray that wickedness. Will be conquered. And you know how we pray that wickedness will be conquered. Through the crushing power. Of our savior. Who crushed the head. Of that serpent. And so also. Takes hearts of stone. And turns them into hearts of of flesh. In his Institutes, Calvin writes, the blindness of evildoers and all the wickedness which follows are called the works of the devil. Nevertheless, the cause lies nowhere else than in their will, out of which grows the root of evil, and on which the devil's dominion, that is sin, depends. You see, it's exactly like Jesus said, evil proceeds from the human heart, which may only be conquered by Christ. And so we pray. In fact, you're already praying for this, and you may not realize it, but every Sabbath, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, we pray to our Father, which art in heaven. We pray that His name be Hallowed. That is, that that God be glorified in all things. And then we pray this. Thy Kingdom come, which our shorter catechism says that that means that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Who knew you were praying that much in thy kingdom come? But we do. We do pray that King Satan's kingdom be destroyed. We do pray that the kingdom of grace may be advanced for ourselves and for others. We do pray that we will be brought in, that we will be kept in, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Yes, rightly do we pray for this, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. First John chapter 5. Finally, and in conclusion, the last theme that I want us to look at here is praise. Gratefully praise the Lord. And this is how David concludes his psalm, isn't it? He concludes his psalm with thankful, with grateful Praise. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. His hopeful heart is a grateful heart, and it rightly translates into praise. And don't let the future tense verb fool you on this. David is not saying, well, when I get past all of this hard stuff, when people just stop being mean to me, when nobody wants to kill me... Then, it'll finally be time to praise the Lord. It's translated as future tense here, but Hebrew scholars will tell you this is in the moment. He is praising the Lord. But why? Why is he praising the Lord? Even though he is persecuted. At the conclusion of what sounds like a long lament, it just seems counterintuitive that someone would be singing and praise. But David's gratitude is not circumstantial. It is rooted in the justice of God, which you got to get if you're going to understand the imprecatory Psalms. His praise is rooted in the justice of God. Because our God is not a God of our making or of David's making. He is the Lord the Most High. And His justice is always perfect because it flows from His righteousness. We can never say that God is unjust. We can never say that what He has done is unjust because it always flows from His perfect righteousness. David declares this in the 11th Psalm, For the Lord is righteous... He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his faith. That's David's hope. That is our hope. The hope of the upright who will not only behold the Lord, but will sing praises to his name and we will do it forever. This is not the praise of the perfect, but the pardoned. Not the praises of the sinful, but the saint. He who confessed his iniquity. In Psalm 51, David says, I was born in iniquity. He knows he has a sin nature. But he looks not to his own righteousness, but to the righteousness of his Redeemer to come. And the righteousness of God in which David trusted is the gospel that we believe. Paul makes this oh so clear. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, the righteousness, or rather, the righteous shall live by faith. And so it is. So it is by faith that we, like David, amidst persecution, can diligently pray for deliverance. Only by faith can we honestly examine ourselves and humbly ask for justice. And so it is by that very same faith that we too may gratefully praise the Lord. Because praising the Lord amidst persecution, is not phony jubilation. It's not putting on a good face and faking it till you make it. It's not an exercise in escapism. It is a confident trust rooted in the righteousness of our King who will judge every sin, punish the wicked, acquit the righteous for the sake of His righteousness alone. Yes, our flesh still tempts me and it still tempts you and supplies me quite well with venom to spew at my enemies. It's amazing what you can say. Well, me too. My flesh still gives me this desire for vengeance when I've been wronged. Everything in us at times wants to retaliate instead of wait for the Lord. And it is in times like this That we look, taking our eyes off of ourselves and looking to him and confessing with our mouths. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and loved you and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, you know how strong our sinful flesh is. You know how that we want to strike back, lash out, how easy it is for our flesh to take control. So we pray that through your gospel you would help us to mortify our sin, to die to self, to look to Christ, yes, even amidst persecution, and praise your holy name. For you are our deliverer. Indeed, you are our refuge. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.